0: Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, and also chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, and verses 22 to 30. In the Pew Bible, in the blue book, it's pages 836 and 838, if you want to follow along. I'll start with the Mark 1 verse, verses 21 to 28, the word of the Lord. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching... And they were astonished at his teaching, and he, for he taught, as them, taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man of, with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. Mark 3, verses 7 through 12. and whenever the unclean spirits saw him they fell down before him and cried out you are the son of god and he strictly ordered them not to make him known mark 3:22 to 30 and the scribes who came down from jerusalem were saying he is possessed by beelzebul and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons and he called them to him and said to them in parables Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies, blasphemes, they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The word of the Lord.
1: you pray with me lord as we come to a fierce a fearsome subject a uh, difficult subject in dealing with uh, the enemy of darkness uh, lord we pray give us grace by your holy spirit to understand your word lord to be encouraged that you are our great warrior come to deliver your people from all evil and misery in this life and the the next. Lord, give us grace to see the goodness and greatness of our great King, uh, to trust Him, and and Lord, to give our lives up to Him for His uh, Spirit to govern more and more of our life, to spread out in the desert the native desert of our lives and cause it to be a teeming forest of goodness in him. Lord, thank you that you come to wage war against the enemy of our souls. May we entrust ourselves to you, mighty king. Amen. So if you're uh, new with us, we're couple of weeks into a consideration of the gospel of Mark and you can see from the title uh, the Kingdom of God which is what the whole of this series is about because Mark talks so much about the kingdom and in particular we're talking about discipleship in the kingdom what does it mean to belong to the kingdom? what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is the nature of this kingdom? What does it look like? How does that affect my life? How does it affect uh, my, my daily doing everything I do? And so we, we come again to this, this passage that tells us some uh, kind of strange aspects, but wonderful aspects of the kingdom of God. And couched in this chapter 3 is perhaps the most disturbing thing Jesus ever said. And it's one of those statements that when you read it, you immediately wonder, have I committed the unforgivable sin? I mean, I've had so many people. What is it? Have I done it? What What does that mean? I mean, it's a scary, scary statement. Well, we're going to consider it and see how very specific it, it is. It's not some vague thing that you could might be accidentally do or whatever. Uh, uh, it's very specific what Jesus is talking about. Um, but it is one of the most serious warnings in Scripture to those who do fall into that category, who do exactly what Jesus is talking about. So I've taken chapter 1 and then these two passages in chapter 3 because they all talk about The same thing, that is, Jesus dealing with uh, demons. First, his actions against them, and then we get to chapter 3, and we see uh, the Pharisees' uh, reaction or response, uh, their accusation, and then finally, Jesus' answer to what they accuse him of. So, pretty simple, right? Jesus' action, their accusation, Jesus' answer to them. Now these passages show us that a vital part of Jesus' mission, a vital part of the kingdom of God, is a frontal assault on the kingdom of, of darkness. These spirits perceive, these unclean spirits perceive who Jesus is and they are panicked. Okay? They're like an antelope at a watering hole, suddenly confronted by a lion. It's kind of the feel of this shock of seeing Jesus. Like what it says in James as he's talking about the fact that demons believe. He said, well, you you believe in God. Fine. Uh, Demons believe and they tremble. They have great perception as to the power and the final destruction of God. And they tremble in their chains, so to speak. And he knows, this one demon says, what do you you have to do with us? He knows that the whole demonic power structure is threatened in Jesus. Not just him, but the whole fraternity is going to go by the wayside. Now, this exact quotation that you see there in chapter 1, where he says, what do you have to do with us? It is used repeatedly in the Old Testament A lot of times between two people at war, when you're challenging the one that's at war with you and say, what do you have to do with us? It means, what business do we have with each other? Or why are you interfering with us? Why are you up in our business? Or because of the shock of his presence, what are you doing showing up like this? Are you here to destroy us? It's like a man on death row who thinks he has another year to live and suddenly he goes to bed at night and he's waked up at 3 a.m. and the time has come. What are you doing here? What do we have to do with each other right now? See, that's the feel. They know destruction's on its way, but has, has he entered in the middle of the night to do it? This is scary stuff for demons, scary stuff. And in keeping with the magic texts of the day, when they declare his identity, it's their pathetic attempt to take away Jesus' power. Uh, like calling on his name is some kind of kryptonite, you know, that's going to render Superman helpless. But it's not even a context. Uh, not even a contest. It says that Jesus rebukes the demon, chapter 1, verse 25. Now... The same word is there in chapter 3, verse 11, but it's translated differently, where it says uh, he um, strictly, or verse 12, he strictly ordered them. It means he rebuked them. Now, this word is used in the Old Testament. Uh, For instance, in Psalm 106, verse 9, it says the Lord rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up, okay? It's a divine word. Or later in Zechariah, chapter 3, when satan is before god accusing joshua the lord says god says the lord rebuke you satan same word and then later in chapter 4 of mark about verse 39 or so it says that jesus who's in the storm he woke up they woke him up he rebuked the wind and he told the sea to be peace to be at peace to be still So there's this continuity with the divine rebuke in the Old Testament and now it's come on the ground. Now it's present in the person of Jesus. The manifestation of God on earth is in Christ Jesus as he's able to uh, rebuke powers that stand against the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is being established and everything must submit to it. So the divine word goes forth here as he rebukes the demonic forces. And they cry out in chapter 1 that he's the Holy One of God, and then later in chapter 3 where we read that he's the Son of God. It's very interesting in Mark that questions about Jesus' identity come from human beings, and answers come in part from demons. Interesting Thing. I mean, Mark could have hidden that, but he exposes it. In fact, it's more up front in Mark where this these declarations occur, so that we early on hear this announcement of who Jesus is. Like the first verse of the Gospel of Mark says, "It's the gospel. It's the good news about the Son of God." And by the way, if you're new. The word gospel means it's an announcement of the good news. It's a presentation of this person of Jesus. It's not his biography, right? It's not just this, this, this. this. It's all structured to proclaim to us the good news of this glorious Savior, this warrior, this king who's come. So it starts that way. And then interestingly, at the very end of Mark, chapter 15, the centurion Right when Jesus dies, he's at the cross and he says, surely this was the son of God. Only other time the term is used by these demons in chapter three. So in effect, they are used of God, used of Mark to say these spiritual beings, evil or not, see something that human beings don't at first. And they're rendered uh, as part of the message here. Mark's using their revelation to proclaim who Jesus really is. So, why the silence, though, in both places? Don't don't spread this news. Don't proclaim this to others. Well, three things I've just mentioned. One is certainly a strategy that Jesus will reveal Himself as and when he wants to reveal himself. And he's not going to let anyone coerce that. And and talk of Messiah or its equivalent, like the Holy One of God or the Son of God, would lead people to think he's some kind of military conqueror. He's not going to entrust this message, especially to demons who oppose his kingdom. So wrong place, wrong people, no. You know, you must be silent. But two more important things. One is that more than any other figure in the Old Testament, Abraham or Moses or any of the prophets or David himself, Jesus patterns his, his ministry after the servant of Isaiah. You'll see that term used throughout Isaiah. And, there, and this had a profound effect on Jesus. And it's the the best picture, the the greatest match of his life and his ministry is how uh, Isaiah describes the servant of the Lord. But part of the nature of that servant is that he's hidden. He's not open and showy and revealed. His humility is a, a chief mark There in Isaiah 49, he says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword, but in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, so he's potent, right? He's mighty, he's able to do anything. But in his quiver, he hid me away. So there's this hiddenness, this humility, how he patterned his ministry. And if you see the Son of God in His, if you don't see the Son of God in His humility and love, then however you're wowed by His miracles, you will not be changed to love Him and follow Him. His great glory is to be found in this hiddenness, in this humility, not in the miracles themselves. It's what they point to, they point to God's salvation. In Christ, which is going to be accomplished, which brings the third point. Just think it's, it's not his strategy. He wants to show he's a servant. And then there's no association with suffering in this announcement. And the true dignity and glory of the Son of God can only be announced and known in the framework of the cross. James Edwards writes in his commentary on Mark, only on the cross can Jesus rightly be known for who he is. So you see this announcement of son of God or holy one of God, it's stripped of its critical context. He says, until the confession of the centurion at the cross, all utterances about Jesus, especially from those Come, the, the coming from members of the rebellion—that is, the demons—are pre, either premature or they're altogether false. So this is the action of Christ, casting out demons at will. People are astonished. You know, at, at least twenty-five times in Mark are the words "astonished," "amazed," "fearful." It, it's just a litany of how incredible the impact of Christ's actions and no less than any of them is this ability as it says, he even commands the unclean spirits. So if you're a scribe, what are you going to do? <laughs> the scribes were religious uh, leaders. They were experts in the law, the Torah, the Old Testament law. They pronounced authoritative, binding interpretations on in the law. And they had the exclusive inside knowledge of the law. That's why they had this esoteric authority that no one else had. They were the teachers of the law in the synagogue. They were called rabbi, which means my great one. So Ryan and Philip and I would like for you to call us rabbi from now on. You just couldn't, could you? <laughs> now that you know the meaning. <clears throat> hey, Rabbi. I've, some people have said that in passing, you know. Hey, preacher. Hey, Rabbi. See, the supreme religious uh, group, the assembly that ruled, was called the Sanhedrin. And you had to be a scribe to belong to the Sanhedrin, to enter the Sanhedrin. You had to be a scribe. People deferred to them on the streets. When they walked in the room, they stood and rose had a tremendous prominence. And so when they come in to say this, this is like the official uh, dispensation from the religious leadership. Oh, okay, we can't deny that these miracles are happening. That would be foolish. You know, everybody, we, we've seen it. We know that it happens. We watch it. Yeah, okay, We can't we can't go there, but we can attribute it to demonic activity. And that apparently what they had decided in Jerusalem, you go down there and you tell those people, you tell everybody where this is coming from, that this is coming from Satan himself. So, official religious pronouncement. And, you know, we we tend to think, you know, if people could just see the miracles of Jesus, they would believe. The 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 scribes are evidence, no, no. And don't think of them as, well, they're especially bad. That's all of us. That's all of us. We're all by nature that way. We'd look square at everything he does and we'd find some excuse in it. We find something there that not to believe, we wouldn't put our trust in him. We would deny him. We'd call it something that it's not. And we tend to do that to this day as different ways to justify our rejection of Jesus Christ. Some reason why the idea of God being such a lover of people, uh, even those who've hated him, that he would die on their behalf, this glorious hero, God, who comes and does this. But man, we will find a way to get around that, to say it doesn't affect me, I don't think he's... Valuable. I will not put my life into his hands. So, a good stab at the original meaning of this "bezebul" uh, is perhaps Baal's dynasty. Baal, an Old Testament uh, idol or foreign god, false god, and in the Old and New Testament, <clears throat> the false gods were described as demons. So, his name can mean or came to mean. Apparently, Baal, ruler of the demons, or ruler of a demon dynasty. Or, as they say here, uh, in a, basically a synonym, he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. So, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, basically a synonym then for Satan, okay? You know, it has the word Baal. It's associated with demonic activity. And Jesus even describes Satan's realm then, as in his parables, <clears throat> as a house or a kingdom. The kingdom or house of, of Satan. And this accusation against Jesus continued in Jewish polemical writings after the time of Jesus. It continued to be part of the attack. So here's uh, one great one, rabbi writing... Yeshu of Nazareth was hanged on the day of preparation for the Passover, which is an interesting outside the Bible attestation that that is what happened. So Yeshu of Nazareth was hanged on the day of preparation for the Passover because he practiced sorcery and led the people astray. Or another says, Yeshu the Nazarene practiced magic and led Israel away. Another one, he's a magician and a seducer of people. Even the pagan philosopher Celsus uh, Celsus even wrote that Christians are strong through the names and the enchantments of certain demons. What a reputation. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it, to think then about Peter saying to believers scattered throughout Asia, when they speak evil against you, continue to do good. Continue to manifest the love of God. Continue to serve them, even if you're suffering. Continue to do good and trust yourself to God. And in some cases, they will become ashamed. They will glorify God. They will see through their prejudices. And brothers and sisters, we've got... (laughs) Sadly, we have a lot of reasons for people to be prejudiced against us, some of the things they see in Christianity, but they will invent their own, and they 'll make us out to be something we 're not uh, that 's going to happen, and it 's not retaliation in the first place it 's not argumentation it 's not you know winning debates it 's just loving people, you know loving their socks off, loving their prejudices away, loving them to see that. No, that's not what we are. We belong to Jesus. And if you keep keep with us, you'll see that we belong to Jesus. So you have Jesus' action of casting out demons, the scribes accusation uh, that he's operating on the basis of Satan himself, and then finally Jesus' answer uh, to this. And Jesus basically uh, as, as it says, he called to him and said to them in parable, Called them to himself and said to them in parables. So let me paint some pictures for you. He's basically saying here, uh, it's preposterous that Satan would be against himself because if that's the case, um, his whole kingdom's falling apart. If he wields all his power against himself, he's destroyed himself. But that's clearly not the case. I mean, look at the no- demonic activity. Uh, my daughter talked me into seeing the only uh, serious zombie movie I ever saw, Dawn of the Dead. Okay? And I had seen, well, as a child, I had seen the Night of the Living Dead, you know, that classic black and white. And, of course, in that one, they're walking like this. And as a kid, I'm like, I could get away from that, <laughs> you know? I mean, you can't catch me. I mean, I'm fast. You know, I, I, can, I can outrun you dawn of the dead. I was just shocked because I won't describe it in too much detail, but I mean, they're running, they're fast. You know, every one of them sprinting to get to the next person and sprinting to get to the next person. It was pretty, pretty bad. I was, you know, watching through my fingers and that kind of thing. Cause we were on the second row. We got there late. So it was right in my face, <clears throat> but it did make me think this. What if What would that be like if every human being in the world, bar none, was trying to kill every other human being? How long would that take? Not very long, right? I mean, not very long at all. You got no friends. Everybody's trying to kill you. You're trying to kill them. Nobody quits until maybe there's one person standing at the end. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. He said, this is crazy that all the demons are at war against themselves and I'm just part of that? No, that's ludicrous. If this is an allied war, demon versus demon, Satan is wiped out. He says, no, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. Mankind is enslaved. He pictures us as enslaved. We're the goods in verse 27. Satan is the strong man. No one can enter his house unless he binds the strong man. But Jesus is saying, I'm entering. I am entering the strong man's place. We are enslaved by sin. We're enslaved by demonic influence and disease and death. And he's the champion warrior who comes to assault the fortress of Satan to bring it down. There's only one stronger than the strong man who can invade his house, ransack his house, and make off with his possessions. Win a people for himself that escape the clutches of the strong man. And so when Jesus casts out demons, he attacks the very lordship of Satan. That's why it reverberates through the whole demonic world. It's just in an isolated incident. This represents what we're up against. He just is flicking us off like flies. We're all goners. It's over. Jesus comes to bring him down and release his captives. He will own the field of battle. In Isaiah 49, again, a great passage about the servant. But listen to this passage. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save you then all mankind will know that I'm the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And the Messianic high priest set forth even in Jewish writings a couple of centuries before Christ state this, and Beliar, that is Beelzebub, Beliar shall be bound and the Messianic priest will grant to his children the authority to trample on wicked spirits. So, the coming of Messiah, the coming of the one from God had everything to do with the destruction of the evil one and the the kingdom of darkness. And so they say he's possessed by an unclean spirit. And in verse 29, Jesus makes it clear he's possessed by none other than the Holy Spirit of God the one who came upon him in his baptism in chapter one to equip him and to enable him throughout his whole ministry to manifest the authority and glory of God. He acts in the great spirit's great authority and power in everything he does. It is the more powerful one, John the Baptist says, who himself baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What? I'm, you know, he's not just, this one will possess the Holy Spirit. No, he's of such power, he will anoint you with the Holy Spirit. He owns the Spirit. The Spirit in him, we'll learn as the New Testament goes on, are one and he manifests himself through the Spirit. The very first miracle story in Mark was the one we read. That's how important this subject is for Mark. First of all, he says, first of all, he cast out a man who had a demon. Here's the announcement of who he is. They accuse him of having this evil spirit, and this gets to this plaguing question. What does this mean, this eternal sin? It's not some vague, undefined sin. Uh, It's the specific accusation that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than good, that he's empowered by the devil rather than by God. And as Isaiah 5 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so it's the denial of the power and goodness of the spirit of God One scholar says, when someone recognizes the mission of Jesus by the Spirit, but defies and resists it and curses it, this is that sin. Or conscious and wicked rejection of the saving power and grace of God towards man. And he says, only the man who sets himself against forgiveness is excluded from it. And Cranfield, who's quoted by many other commentators, says, if you're asking the question Am I forgiven? You're not one of those. <laughs> if, have, have I uh, done the unforgivable sin? Then you're not one of those people. They don't care. They despise and reject and they uh, impute evil to what Jesus does. Now, let's look at some application as we close up. One that I've kind of saved, and we just can glance at it because of time and reading, is how this passage is sandwiched in Mark by two episodes, beginning and end. So you have this ABA thing, right? In the middle is the rejection of the scribes, but on each end is the rejection by close associates, most likely for sure, family, maybe some others, because in in the few verses before, uh, his family comes to seize him. It's the a powerful word that uh, describes later the authorities seizing Jesus. Right, his family comes to seize him, or it may mean close associates, but probably family because they return in in chapter thir- verse thirty one because they think he's deranged. So they think he's deranged. The scribes think he's possessed. And then at the end of this passage, again, he's in with a crowd sitting around him, maybe even in a circle. He's pointing to his disciples. He's there with his disciples. His mothers and brothers are outside. They send to him, they're seeking him, but that word seek is always a negative in. Book of Mark. It means someone seeking to control Jesus. They're calling out to him, seeking him, Jesus, Jesus, you know, that kind of attitude. Because they don't like what he's doing. And they say, and everybody's concerned, I your mother and brothers are outside. You know, like the law even said, I mean, you need, they're out, you can't ignore them. And then he says, Hear my, my mother and my brothers. Those who do the will of God. It's a great irony that in the house before and after are those who are at his feet and who do his will. But that's normally where family is and you've got outsiders. But now family's outside and the disciples are inside. Because you don't become a member of this kingdom by being in the right family. And these words in the middle part of the sandwich are spoken to religious leaders, especially. People with religious privilege and relational privilege. And they're purposely put together. So that yes, this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but it's not separate from this rejection of Jesus. So those who are comfortable with him, those who are lackadaisical with Jesus, those who don't want to be zealous for Jesus, you know. What's all the uproar about Jesus? Leave me be Jesus. Let me get on with my life. That's dangerously associated with this active rejection of Jesus. So who's inside and who's outside, right? Those who are inside at his feet, trusting him, looking to him, seeking to do his will, who have entrusted their salvation to him, they are the ones that are his family. And what's interesting, anyone can be on the inside. Anyone. Just sit at his feet, trust him. Depend on his salvation. Give your life to do his will. You can be family. doesn't matter who you are. But if you won't sit at his feet, it doesn't matter who you are. You're not in the family. If you don't sit at the feet of Jesus. I've often sat in an aquarium and I'm just amazed that I can be right here, inches away from this little fish. And I think, we're just in different worlds, you know, like we're two inches apart, but he's in this world and I'm in my world. It's like we're miles apart, but we're right together. And some of you children, I want to say to you that you could be just like that with your own parents who believe in Jesus and you're that close to them, but you could be miles away because they're in a different world. They're in a world of Sitting at the feet of Jesus, and you're not, because you don't become a Christian by proxy. Proxy means somebody's just standing in for you. Oh wait, wait, I'll speak. I'll speak for her. That's my daughter. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Let her in. That's my. That's my son. That's my wife. Uh, thank you. That's my. W- Doesn't count. There's no proxy. All of us sitting at the feet of Jesus. All of us trusting Him. And our time is up. Let me just say, though, this matter of Him setting people free has everything to do with you and me. Because by nature, we all belong to darkness. By nature, we all serve darkness. We need this warrior who will come in and rescue us captives so that we will not belong him anymore and isn't it encouraging that Jesus says here all blasphemies all sins will be forgiven it doesn't matter that's why the Lord's prayer in the early request is thy kingdom come and the very last one is deliver us from the evil one let us pray O oh Lord, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us so that we will serve you all our days. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.